there is a book. There is a book, not that book. There is a book in one of the men's dorms on the campus of Asbury University. And the name of the book is What Christian Men, Everything Christian Men Know About Women. And the book itself is 450 pages plus. But when you open the book and start flipping through, you see quickly that all of the pages are blank. More than one father has exclaimed to his son, Son, women are a mystery. I don't understand your mother. I've never understood your mother. I don't think I will ever understand your mother. Even if I were to undergo a Vulcan mind meld with her, in which case I think the download would kill me. So I recognize that as a 44, for a 44-year-old man to be talking to women about women today is a little risky. I recognize that. I could argue that I've been married 24 years to the same woman. I could argue that I've got not just a mom, but a mother-in-law. I could argue that I've got two daughters, but I don't think that's going to carry much weight this morning. And so today, I want to share a story that I've never shared publicly so that ladies, you know, I have, in fact, walked a mile in your shoes. When it comes to unpleasant medical procedures that you will face later on in life. At age 34, I uh, noticed a mass that was growing in my chest, outside my rib cage, under my skin. And it was hard and it was growing fast. It was under my left pec. Because my mom had survived breast cancer, it freaked my doctor out because apparently, I didn't know this, uh, as a man, you can get a form of breast cancer if your mom has had it. And it's not cool. So my doctor freaked out. He sent me to a specialist. My specialist freaked out, and he wanted pictures. We got to make sure what this thing is. And he wanted to do surgery as well, which he did, by the way. Um, so they scheduled me to have an appointment at the Central Baptist Mammography Center. I got to go as a man. Yes, sir. And, and so when I, I had my appointment, it was late in the afternoon, and so I show up to an empty waiting room. And I figured that that was probably because they didn't want a man coming all by himself without his wife or his mom because it might unsettle the other women there, right? Okay, so I show up, and it's an empty waiting room. And sure enough, one of the ladies comes out because it's all staffed by women. One of the ladies comes out and says, Mr. Vanderpool, we're ready for you. And they take me to this room, the mammography room. Now, younger women, I'm going to explain how this works. Men, if you've, never, if you've wondered what your wife endures when she goes to this appointment, you're going to know today. Okay? So I go in there, and there's the, it's this giant room with this machine hanging from the ceiling that looks like a medieval torture device. And it's got claws and two plexiglass plates that are on a motor. And it does this. It's smashing flesh in between the plates. That's what it's doing, okay? Make no mistake about it. Whatever it puts in between it, it makes it into a pancake so they can take a picture of it. So the first thing out of the woman's mouth is, Mr. Vanderpool, um, and she's beating around the bush, Mr. Vanderpool, um, uh, and I said, go ahead, bring them all in, because I knew. 
we don't have many men come in, and this is my first time. I said, that's okay, mine too. <laughs> and so in files the entire staff of Central Baptist Mammography to watch me endure getting my mammogram. Now I would like to point out, I'm going to give you a profile picture. There's a whole lot more here today than there was when I was 34. <laughs> so this is how this works. One of the poor women was selected with the task. I don't know if she drew the short straw or what, but she had to, her job was to get enough of my flesh in between the closing plates. Okay? So we try that once, and she's pulling and yanking, and I'm, I'm getting very intimate with a machine that I did not want to be with. Okay? <laughs> And the, the motor's engaged, and it's trying to smash things, and, I'm, and it's, it can't hold me. There's not enough to hold. And so she's trying the fourth time and the fifth time on the 15th try. It goes, and I was trapped. I don't know if it, after 15 times it became elastic. But there I was, now trapped like an animal in the forest, only with this giant machine at the hospital. And you can't slide out. You can't go anywhere. And I, wanted, I want you to know that going through my mind... By the way, men, if you're, when your women endure this, okay, it's not like once you're trapped, you're thinking, hey, while you're taking the pictures, you got a magazine I could leaf through, you know, as I'm just casually here. No, you want to know what you're thinking? Ah! That's what you're thinking. Oh, it's got me. Okay, and parts of me it shouldn't have. Let go. Okay, so two things, two conclusions I have from this. One, there's got to be a better way to figure out whether or not you have breast cancer. <laughs> this machine was clearly designed by a man. Secondly, while I don't know what it's like to be a mom or a wife, I do know what it's like to get a mammogram. And let me tell you, ladies, it's no fun. <laughs> so... Ladies, hang with me, hang with me. Today, I actually want to give you this Christian man's take on the woman's world. It's a world that I've observed for some time. It's a world full of expectations, expectations about the kind of body that you're going to have, the kind of man you're going to marry, the kind of career you're going to walk out, the kind of kids that you'll raise. Expectations, expectations. I flipped through women's magazines that are filled outside my mom's living room. Woman's World, First, Woman's Day, Family Circle, Good Housekeeping. These magazines, apart from the occasional Dr. Oz, are filled with images of women that do not exist. These women are thinned, airbrushed, and perfected to a point that not even Cindy Crawford could measure up to. It's why the, for the longest time in my house, I did not allow there to be a scale. I, it was one of the only smart things I did as a young man. When we got married, Jenny said, do you have any you know, conditions for getting married? I said, yeah, I have one condition, no scales. And so for the longest time, I relented because Jenny's got a goal. And, she, and so in, within the past year, a scale made its way into our house. And exactly what happened, what I thought would happen is, and I didn't even have to look. This is what I heard. Step. <sighs> 
as if a number on a little LCD screen has any correlation to your worth or value as a person. And there it is. And it plays out like that in countless ways. I want you to know, as a man, I've come to two conclusions about the woman's world that I encounter on a regular basis. Conclusion number one, you guys are hard on yourselves. You are really hard on yourselves about what you accomplish and don't accomplish, what you get done and don't get done, the laundry, the house, the kids, the relationships. You are really hard on yourselves. My second conclusion, you guys are hard on each other. And I don't mean directly, I mean indirectly. Here's what plays out. When I'm dropping one of the girls off at ballet and I'm walking through the waiting room filled with women, I'll hear things like, did you see what she was wearing? I know. Oh, my God. Or I would never let my kids do that. I know. And she's got three of them. You know, and doom, cut, snipe, cut, snipe. And there's this cutting and sniping that goes on all the time. And I wonder, I just wonder if that informed, because you know it goes on, if in the back of your mind you're always wondering what's being said about you and what they say when you're not there. And so those are two conclusions that I have. Here's what I want for you. I don't want you to be or feel condemned. I don't. On this Mother's Day, on any day of the week, as a Christian man looking into your world, I don't want you to be condemned. I want you to know that you are loved and wanted by your Heavenly Father. And to make a case for that today, I'm going to look at a woman that Jesus encountered in the New Testament several times. But I want to begin by reminding you something that's true about you that you get honestly, okay? And it happens at an early age. Any little girl, when she's four or five, she puts on a dress or she's in her ballet tutu. And what does she do? When daddy comes into the room, she does the twirl. And she's wanting and waiting to see, is he going to stop? Is he going to pay attention? Is he going to smile? Is he going to acknowledge that I'm beautiful? Some of you got that from your dads. Some of you didn't. But that thing, that drive in you to be desired and wanted and validated that way, you get that honestly. Do you know who you get that from? God. Did you know that? From the pages of the Old Testament, this is how God describes himself to us. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. God wants to be sought after and found. Jeremiah 31, uh, 3, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with an unfailing love I have drawn you to myself. God wants to be sought after. God wants us to love him. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, God waits to be wanted. And so that thing in you, if you've ever had it as a woman, you get it honestly from your heavenly father. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I want to suggest to you today that the safest place for you to be as a woman or as a man is actually at the feet of Jesus. And to do that, I want to look at a woman who spent a good deal of time at the feet of Jesus, and her name is Mary. Mary had a sister named Martha and a brother named Lazarus. The three of them together lived in a town called Bethany, which was a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And this particular family became early supporters of Jesus and became really good friends. The kind of friends that when Jesus wanted to hang out with some people, he'd go to Bethany. He'd go to Lazarus' house, Mary's house, Martha's house. 
because he wanted to hang with his really good friends. So Luke chapter 10 is the first incident we're going to look at. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. There's an event, and I know, I, my, I get this honestly in my family because my wife is the daughter of the queen of hosting. Karen Thompson has a dining room table that seats 14. She's got like three different sets of everyday dishes and chinaware. And, and when the event's done, she knows exactly how many forks are left because she counts them. She knows every detail and has everything planned out flawlessly. Okay? And in this story, in this account that happened, uh, there's an event. And Martha's doing the hosting details. There's all these things, that food that needs to be set out, people, you know, uh, foot washing, all kinds of stuff that has to go on. And Martha is all over it. And this is what the text tells us. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. There's only one observation I want to make about this story, and that's this. Jesus didn't put up with wrong judgments made about a woman who was at his feet. He didn't. Martha's upset. Her motivations are right. We need to get this thing knocked out. We need to do it. Tell her to get to work, Jesus. Tell her to get to work. She's not doing her job, Jesus. And he rebukes her gently, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. Your judgments about your sister are wrong. She's seeking me. She's at my feet. She's listening. She's doing exactly what she needs to do. Leave her alone. That's Jesus saying this about the sniping and cutting that goes on. All right? If that's not enough, uh, there's another incident with this same woman in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 6. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. Now John records the same incident, and John tells us outright, this is Mary, whose sister was Martha, whose brother was Lazarus. They were at this house, at this dinner party. Apparently Simon was somebody who had had leprosy, but Jesus had healed. And now he's back at his family home and he's having a party for Jesus and, and he's got a lot to celebrate. All right? So let's continue on. The disciples, verse 8, were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. Oh, another cut, another snipe, another judgment. It, couldn't have been, it could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Wah. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She's poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Mary had acquired a, uh, 
jar of nard from India. It was very expensive. Scholars estimate it would have been worth a year's wages. And she pours it over Jesus' head and feet as he's reclining at table. Who gets upset this time? The men in the room. And what do they do? They accuse Mary of doing the wrong thing, the wrong way, the wrong time. You're doing it wrong. Why can't you get with the program? What a waste. Cut and snipe. And what does Jesus do again? Immediately. Don't. No. Uh Uh-uh. She's doing exactly what she needs to be doing. She's treasuring and valuing me. And I always receive that with gladness. And he makes a promise. And the promise is she's going to be hurt. This deed is, the gospel's huge. Wherever the gospel goes, people are going to talk about this woman and what she did. And for those of you that are uh, attuned to details, it's just a day later that he's arrested and, and crucified. And one of the last most beautiful fragrances that he smells as he's dying is what Mary gave that night. I want to ask a question. And the question is, where do you go to be valued? Where do you go to be prized? Where do you go to have your identity affirmed or confirmed? Where do you take that? I would suggest to you that you need to take it to the feet of Jesus. That that's the best place to go because Jesus won't put up with condemnation that's wrongly based. If you go to the feet of Jesus, Jesus will defend you. Jesus will defend your honor. Jesus will silence your accusers. Jesus will glad, glad, take, be glad in your treasuring of him. And I know this sounds kind of pie in the sky, so let me make this a little bit more practical. Ladies, the next time you feel condemned either because a voice in your own thoughts is doing it or it's someone else's voice, your mom, your sister, and they mean well, but they said it, and there it is, all right? The next time you feel guilty because something isn't done, someone isn't happy, something doesn't fit, ask yourself, who is speaking? Who really is saying this, and why? Why are they saying it? If it's not out of love to see you at your best, It's not even worth considering, isn't it? Is it? I would say no. So ask yourself, who's speaking and why are they saying it? On this Mother's Day today, I don't care if you're 13, 23, 63, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of condemnation in the world. And on the one hand, yes, we as sinners, as sinners, we stand condemned. But for everyone who's been born again, you become an adopted daughter of God himself. And God is protective and glad and, and has a full heart toward his adopted daughters all the time. How do I know this? Two reasons. One, the Bible tells me so. Jesus gives us the clearest picture of God and how he rolls and what his attitudes are, right? And so how does Jesus interact with women throughout the New Testament who are condemned by others? Let's go through some list of women, right? The woman at the well. She's had five husbands. She's not where she should be. She's at the well at the time of the day when no one else is there so that she doesn't have to hear the snipping and cutting and biting that's going to go on and the comments that are going to be made about her. Does Jesus condemn her? 
No. Does he walk out truth about her choices and where she is? Oh, yeah, truth is there, but not condemnation. That woman is set free that moment. The woman caught in adultery is asked, where are your accusers? They're gone. I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Again, there's truth, but it's couched in, in front-loaded with love and acceptance. That's how Jesus rolls. So the Bible tells me that's God's attitude, and that's how God rolls with his adopted daughters. Secondly, I know this because I'm a dad myself. This week at uh, the, the um, West Middle School, I had an incident, and, and I share this so that you can get a glimpse, okay? So I, I have Jill in the car, and I'm pulling into West Middle School. You know, and you have to wait, and it depends how long it takes, and you stop, and then you go, and then you stop, and then Jill's like, we're going to be late. They're going to let the buses out. They're going to be late. They're going to go, okay, calm down, Jill. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We get around, get around to the front door finally, and then boom, she's gone out the door. You know, like a bat at the, you know, setting of the sun. Boom, she's gone, okay? But in my eye, I watch this circle of girls. And as soon as Jill gets out of the car, they're giggling toward each other. And then one of the girls goes and walks over and clearly says something to Jillian. And then goes back to the circle and they all laugh again. As a dad, I am now at DEFCON 1. My finger is on the trigger, and I'm mentally under thinking, I'm, I'm stopping the car, and I'm going to get out, and I'm going to give that young lady a what for. That is what I'm going to do. Don't you mess with my daughter. And then I'm like, mm, so I talk myself out of it. Talk myself out of it. I drive away because I figure I'm too mad. And then I'm a pastor, and what kind of trouble am I going to get in if I'm yelling at somebody, okay? So later, <laughs> later that day... Later that day, I asked Jill, I'm like, hey, when I dropped you off this morning, there was this girl, and, you know, she was in a circle of girls, and she went over and she said something to you. What did she say exactly? Oh, she said, eat beef. I'm like, what? Yeah, we have this thing at the middle school at the beginning that if you drive up and your license plate says something, that um, you go up to that person and you say to them what was on the license plate of the car they got out of. And on the front of your car, it says, eat beef. So she came up to me and said, eat beef. Can I tell you, I'm so glad I didn't get out of my car. <laughs> but in that moment, when my finger was on the trigger, let me tell you, I am not a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect husband. I've got good stuff in me and bad stuff in me, but that thing in me in that moment, how much more your heavenly Father who has adopted you into his family and you are an adopted daughter who was purchased at a great price, the price of the cost of the life of his only son, how much more does he feel that way toward you?